Hello and welcome to Failing Boldly, a podcast that invites people to share stories about failure, resilience, and perseverance. I'm your host, Christian Kuhn, and my guest this week is Denise Pope. Denise is a senior lecturer at the Stanford University Graduate School of Education and the author of Doing School, How We Are Creating a Generation of Stressed Out, Materialistic, and Miseducated Students. She's also the co-founder of Challenge Success, an organization that partners with schools, families, and communities to embrace a broad definition of success and implement research-based strategies that promote student well-being and engagement with learning. With many conversations happening right now about how schools will be educating their students this fall, Denise offers some fresh perspectives on how we should be preparing our children for their futures. I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, Denise Pope, thank you so much for being on the Failing Baldy podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm going to start by sharing a little bit of a personal story on my, uh, from my life to kind of get into our conversation. Um, I, I graduated from high school in 1986 and so went to college at that time frame. This is a little bit different context where I am now. I grew up in a small town in Iowa and I remember I wanted to go to a good college but I don't remember it like being obsessed about it. And so now fast forward, my daughter just finished her freshman year at Michigan State University and thinking about all the different feelings I had for her and feeling the competitiveness among other parents and their kids that I don't think I felt when I was in high school. And so reading your book is just was so interesting to kind of think about all these uh, different feelings. And so I want to talk about kind of what's happened in our culture and and the whole and doing school as your as your book notes. But first, before we get into that, I'm curious about how you started studying. What led you to start studying this area in the first place? Well, I was a kid who loved school, so I went to high school and fell in love with poetry and literature, and not so much the science and math, but um, but really loved just reading and discovering and going to school every day. It was a joy. And I became a high school English teacher to recreate that joy uh, in in my own students and was finding that not all of them felt the way that I did. And and really, I wasn't able to reach kids in the way that I wanted to. And it led me to go back to graduate school and get a PhD and kind of figure out why this wasn't working and why kids, particularly why kids weren't as engaged as I wanted them to be, even when I worked really hard to try and make the content relevant and motivate them. So I decided to study what was working at schools that were very highly respected. Um, I picked a um, a sort of an award-winning public school in the Bay Area to shadow kids uh, for my dissertation and to find out, well, this is is a great school. It's got a great reputation. The students do well. Uh, Over, you know, 90% go on to four-year college. I should study the school and find out what's working and, and write a dissertation about it. And that's really what led to doing school. That was my dissertation that we just converted into a book. Did you go in thinking that you were going to find what the school is doing right and then come out realizing like, oh, this is not what I expected? Yes, 100%. So I went in thinking, I'm, and I, I had this elaborate way of choosing the five kids that I was going to shadow, and I would shadow them every day for a full year. And about a month in, I went to my advisor and I said, uh, we have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> these, these are great kids, but they're, they're, this is a 
this is not the kind of engagement I thought I would see. Um, they're doing all sorts of strategies, cutting corners and cheating and uh, not loving it. You know, these are, these are get, they're getting great grades. They're really involved in extracurriculars and student council and they're terrific kids, but they are doing school. And that is not what I thought I was going to find at all. I wonder one of the big things from the book that shocked me because I kept thinking, when did this overemphasis on grades happen? And one of the studies that you cite that really took me aback was um, one study showed that in 1967, 82% of college freshmen said that their primary concern was to develop a meaningful philosophy of life. And then in 1997, they asked college freshmen basically the same question, what's your, uh, what's your primary concern? And 74% said that they want to be very well off financially. And that uh, such a seems like a huge generational shift and change. Um, can my hunch is there's probably not one thing that led to that shift, numerous things, but what are some of the things do you think that have um, also in the book you talk about historically, there's always been an emphasis on grades, but in recent years, recent decades, anyway, it's just an overemphasis. And so I'm wondering what led to that. A whole bunch of things. You're right. It's not just one thing. If, if you yeah. talk to ed historians, you can see a real change from the 80s, which is also when I went to college, I'm a little older than you, to now, which is some changes are good. More kids than ever are going to college, applying to college, seeing college as the next step after high school. That's a good thing. But there is a perception then that there are fewer slots at colleges because of this, this load that who are applying. And, and actually we have thousands and thousands of colleges in the United States that are accredited. We, uh, we, there is not a shortage of college spots, but there are 20, 30, you know, colleges in the United States that are considered elite. Um, those are harder to get into because you have a bunch of people who are now applying to this small segment of schools. So, so one reason is we have more kids than ever going to college. Another reason is we have this thing called the U.S. News and World Report that came out. It did not exist when you and I were applying to college. Well, the the, the U.S. News and World Report college edition did not exist. Right. Um, and it ranks schools. And so now you're told what schools are good and what schools are considered bad by this journal. And it, uh, it has a lot of power. And it, it's sort of a self-serving, well, now we got to get into the best schools. It's not just get into college, but get into the best schools, which puts pressure on the system. We have the Common App, which now you check off a bunch of boxes. I mean, you and I had to type our applications on paper and mail each one with a separate stamp, right? Now it's just all very easy, check, 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 pay your money. Um, University of California, it's one application for all of those schools. I'm sure that it's similar in other states. So we have more kids applying to college. It's easier to apply to more colleges. We don't have more beds or spots at the top, top colleges than before, right? Those are the same. They're, they're asking the same amount, of, uh, accepting the same amount of people. And we have a notion that you cannot do better than your parents unless you go to the next step up, right? So now it's, it used to be undergrad, now it's grad school, right? Now it's the next step after that. Um, and people define success in this country very much associated with educational attainment and then money. 
So, so there's a line in the book that Kevin says, we don't go to school to learn. And it was a shocking line to me. What do you mean you don't go to school to learn? You go to school to get the grades, to get into college, to get the high paying job. And that's what gets you to happiness. And there's that very narrow notion of success that this is how you are successful in America. And if you are not doing those things, getting the grades, getting into the top college, getting the job that makes a lot of money, then you are a failure. One of the heartbreaking things reading the book was that these are teenagers that are essentially, and I think this maybe ties into the title of the book, Doing School, they're playing the game and they are figuring out I know how to work this particular teacher or this administrator to get where I want to go. But it seems like the system is set up. It's, it's not just the students who are playing into this. It's parents, it's teachers, it's administrators. And so I'm, the, the, the shift in how, how we perceive schooling and the prestige of certain degrees, what kind of impact does that have? I'll start with just students on them. Um, both emotionally, I guess, especially emotionally. And um, uh, for me, I'm curious about spiritually too, but also psychologically. The term academic achievement pressure was not really a thing until the past couple of decades that there, there, there was pressure. We saw with new immigrants coming into the country, pressure to achieve in school and that school was the way out, learn English, um, you know, get through school and you'll get a job. That's continued, but even more so to the point where we're seeing some real negative um, uh, outcomes from what should be a good thing, encouraging kids to love and enjoy and do well in school. What we're seeing is severe anxiety. Hmm. What if I can't do this? Um, We're seeing uh, higher rates of depression. We are seeing higher uh, suicide ideation. Now, not all of this is due to academic achievement pressure, but we are seeing kids who are saying, I have so much pressure on me. I need to do these things, which I know are wrong. I need to cheat. I need to stay up all night. I need to lose sleep. I need to overschedule myself with extracurriculars and extra advanced placement classes and all that to the point where it is causing um, mental health issues, physical health issues, right? Exhaustion, stomach aches, ulcers, but also mental health issues. And yes, indeed, spiritual issues, right? If if your whole definition of success is making it through this little tiny gauntlet, you know, going through the eye of a needle to get into the top school, to get the top job, to get the most money, um, imagine what that does to you spiritually. Absolutely. And so you, this book came out in 2001. Uh, and so has everything that you found then just uh, been exacerbated in the last 20, almost 20 years? Sadly, yes. Um, Part of that is because of population numbers, right? So uh, the baby boomers are having lots of kids who are college age. That's increasing the numbers applying to college. Part of that is the way we're doing school now with different accountability measures. So we had No Child Left Behind. We have the ESSA Act. We, we, We have more standardized testing and accountability happening that puts pressure on schools and systems and teachers to get kids to be college ready and perform. So that's adding adding pressure to the system. Um, Like you said, we have parents who are really fearful. Hmm. What will happen if my kid doesn't get into college? 
um, which again is is a myth, right? There's a college spot for every kid who wants to go. You you don't you know you, in some states you don't even need to pay. I believe Illinois is is one. In California, community colleges are paid for. Sorry, interrupt. But in two, yeah. there's you, you cite a study in the book that that essentially, if I remember correctly, generally speaking, it doesn't have that big of an impact that most people think it does. Like where you go to school. This is a huge study, and actually, since the book was published we uh, presented a college white paper. We, we took a year to, to look through all the data and does it matter where you go to school? And it's very, very clear that for the majority of kids in this country, particularly kids who grew up in um, privileged suburban you know, areas, it does not make a difference at all where you go to college. You can go to community college, you can go to a uh, four-year college, you can go to an elite college, and the outcomes are very, very similar better for four year versus two year. But if you look at things like thriving, right? So you'll love the study by by the Gallup um, people. They look at thriving. I'm thriving as a person. I'm thriving spiritually. I'm thriving with my health. I'm thriving financially. I'm I'm thriving in my community. I feel like I belong. It didn't matter if you went to community college or or some of the top, top, you know, ranked colleges in the country. They scored just as well or just as poorly on, on the thriving scale. In terms of financial, there is some. There are some studies that show if you grew up um, uh, in an underserved neighborhood, were the first in your family to go to college, or grew up uh, black or Latinx, that it did matter slightly the ranking of the college to help propel you to get the jobs that you might want. But for everybody else, there was really no difference there. It turns out that what you do in college matters far more than the name of the college you go to. I sensed that during when our, when our daughter was going to college and talking to other parents, but I think for pa- parents get so caught up in it as well as I would imagine that social media plays into a little bit of this too, in that p- people are now much more public about where they're considering and where they're going. And then parents, I, I remember conversations among other parents, like, oh, where your kid, where's your kid applying? And they'll name these five schools. And did they get into these schools? And, in, and internally, I'm like, oh, you, as you said, U.S. News didn't rate my kids' schools higher than that. And so it just, you know, it's just a really awful cycle. <laughs> it, it is. There's peer pressure among kids. There's peer pressure among parents. Kids want to please their parents. They want to please their teachers, right? They buy into it themselves. Um, look to the extent that some people went with the college admission scandal. Right. Mm-hmm. They're 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 going to jail because of, of this crazy thing that says that they've got to score this high on the SAT to get into this prestigious college. Um, and and for what the research is saying, that's not even borne out. Those kids in particular of actors and actresses have the wealth and status when they walk into whatever college they actually I mean, for them, it really, really doesn't matter, <laughs> even even on a scale where you look at money as success, which is not how we define success at Challenge Success, but how a lot of people do. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of the reasons why we started Challenge Success, right? Is that there's this notion, this very narrow notion that success is all about um, getting in, getting the grades, getting in and getting the money. And we are saying, no, 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 no. There's, there are many, many ways to be successful in this world. Um, and you can be successful even if you don't get all A's, don't score highly on SAT, don't get into the top ranked US News and World Report colleges. And and that message gets lost when parents start going into this swirl and putting pressure on their 
five-year-olds to get into the best school that will propel them and practice SAT tests from the time you're 10 years old. And I mean, there's just some crazy, very inappropriate, very developmentally inappropriate, unhealthy practices going on where parents are well-meaning and they don't know the harm you're doing to their kids. Can you say a bit more about how Challenge Success came about and how is it... um... Talk to us a little bit about what are, what are some of the things that you're doing in order to kind of get that message out. Sure. So um, the director of the health center at Stanford University, which is where I was working and still work, at the time the book came out, read the book and called me in and said, listen, we have a ton of kids who did this doing school kind of game. And that's how they got into Stanford. And they're ending up in the health center because they're stressed and they have ulcers and they have not had a break and they are burnt out and they are on psychotropic medication to deal with, you know, all of this. And by the way, this is not just Stanford. This, this is a mental health crisis across higher ed that we're seeing. And he basically said to me, can you start an intervention? It was a challenge. Hmm. Uh, And this was in 2003. So it was two years after the book came out. I had, um, you know, a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old at the time. And I thought, oh my gosh, I don't have the answer. This was sort of an, you know, the book was a, an alarm bell that I was saying, hey, people wake up. Our values are out of whack. But I didn't have the answer. And he said, well, you don't have to do it alone. Let's get a group together from, from the university and, and really work on this. And when we were working on it, we decided that the target at the college age was useful and we and I'm still on a task force at Stanford that we do things to mitigate the stress at the college level, but that we realized that this starts much earlier and we had to start at the K-12 level and particularly around both school system changes at school that would help increase well-being for kids and really change this narrow notion of success and changes in parenting. So that's what we do at Challenge Success. We really have a a system where we work very closely with schools and ask them to change some of the processes that lead to some of the negative outcomes. Uh, and I can talk about those in a second. And we work very closely with students and parents and ask them to think about, are they, are they really walking the talk? Are they, they say they value health and well-being, And are they really doing that with how they're talking about things like college and grades and whatnot? And, and what is that negative behavior um, that comes out of those messages, you know, like, honey, how'd you do on the history test? Sounds like a very well-meaning, sounds like you're being a good parent, right? Yeah. But it's, it's, what it's basically saying is um, grades are more important than, yeah. you know, how are your friends and who did you sit with in the cafeteria today? And, and what good deed did you do? Or what questions did you ask in school? Or what interests you, right? If we just focus on those grading kind of questions, have you finished your homework? And, you know, did you, did you practice your SAT questions? We're actually sending the wrong message to our kids. Just in the last week, the reading the book made me think about some of what I have been affirming. So my daughter did really well our second semester. She did well all year, but second semester, she did particularly well in school. And so I remember we were having a Zoom call with my dad and I said, oh, Caroline got straight A's. Isn't this great? And, you know, not that that's bad necessarily, but then I, I realized like, when do I really, really affirm her for something else? And so just yesterday, she told me that she, for the first time, called a senator. Uh, and she said, she thought she was going to get voicemail. So she had to talk to a real person. And she described it as she probably hemmed and hawed and was nervous, which is all typical. 
But I tried really hard to think, okay, here's an opportunity for me to say, that was awesome that you did that, rather than me always just only looking to the grades as a way to affirm, uh, affirm her. Exactly. There's, there's a part in the book where Kevin, a 10th grader, um, is written up in the newspaper for a service project that he, he's done. And he posts that above his bed. And he says, I look at that every day and it gives me motivation. And he doesn't post his transcript above his bed, right? But his parents have the transcript on the refrigerator <laughs> uh, and they don't have the newspaper posted on that fridge, right? So, so what are you, um, you know, inadvertently valuing and saying, you know, even when you talk about, oh, did you hear so-and-so got into the Ivy League or so-and-so got into this school? What does that say about all those other kids who are going to all those other colleges and how wonderful it is that they're continuing their education in that way, right? Um, so yeah, we have to really watch the words that we say and our actions. It's tough. It's really can tough you, as a parent. Yeah, can you say more about that for uh, like what actions can parents and schools begin to live into? So there's certain things that seem really obvious if you look at it with clear eyes, but, but here's one very simple thing. Kids need sleep, right? Adolescents need eight to 10 hours of sleep every single night. In the name of getting into college and keeping them busy, we schedule kids in sports and drama and model United Nations and you know this many honors classes and whatnot so that their days fill and they are unable to get eight to 10 hours of sleep. Um, we do it as parents, we think we're doing a good thing. We're keeping them busy. We're letting them get involved in things. We know the colleges are gonna be looking at extracurriculars and grades and whatnot. But as a parent, you actually have to be the parent and say, this is too much. You cannot do this. This is not healthy for you. We, we need parents to eat dinner together with their kids. It's, it's family dinner. There's a lot of research on the importance of family dinners. Um, that can't happen when everybody is running around like chickens with their head cut off. So parents need to actually put a stake in the ground and say, the current system is not healthy for my kid. You wouldn't let your kid eat, you know, we, we buy organic vegetables. We, we don't let, let our kids drive drunk, right? We, we make sure our kids have bicycle helmets. You need to make sure your kids are getting the sleep they need. That is an absolutely critical job as a parent above and beyond how many extracurriculars are in or how many honors or AP classes are in. So that's one example. We, we actually have a little mnemonic aid at Challenge Success for Parents called PDF. And it looks at what the Center for Disease Control and Pediatric Associations and Psychology Associations have said are really protective factors for kids. And it turns out it falls into this category of PDF. That's a little way to remember it, right? It's not portable document format, but it stands for playtime, downtime, family time. Mm. And every child, no matter what age, I would actually say every person needs PDF every day. Yeah. And what does that look like, right? And how do you balance that? And downtime includes sleep and playtime includes physical activity and family time includes family meals and dedicated time where the TV's off, where the phones are not at the dinner table, where you're checking in. Uh, and it's a protective factor because checking in with kids on a daily basis is a way to make sure that kids don't fall through the cracks. Yeah, yeah. That's really, thank you for sharing that. In the... Uh, your conversation on the On Being show slash podcast, um, you talk about whenever you, sometimes when you speak to a group, you ask them to uh, define success. And 
there were two, because of this podcast and the nature of it, talking about failure, there were two comments from students, even Michelle, from the book. Uh, Eve says, if I quit something, I will consider myself a failure, and I really fear, fear failure. And then Michelle, uh, this is what you wrote. She said, she has become so used to succeeding in school that she does not know how to face the possibility of failing, at least in her eyes. And so... Can you talk a little bit about, in addition to when you ask people to define success, do you ever, maybe not explicitly, but talk about how do they define failure and how they can begin to cope with that? Yes. And, and, and I'm not the first to do this. There are, are, are people, colleges, uh, Harvard and Stanford actually started the, the concept of, you know, the resilience project is what they're called. And and they are. They asked. They started out by asking professors at these top top colleges, you know, to talk about their failures. Because I think when you're a student and you look around and you see adults who look like they all have it together and that they've always had it together, you don't see the path that they had to take to get there. And so there's this real misunderstanding that you have to be perfect. Um, you you can't quit. You can't make mistakes. And what we know about the psychology of learning is in order to learn, you have to make mistakes. That's actually how you learn. You, you know, if you think about how little kids learn to walk, they take a few steps, they fall down, they kind of test it out, they get back up. That's how you're learning. And it's, 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 it's actually connected to something called a growth mindset, where you realize that it's not innate in you to be good at something or bad at something. That effort and making mistakes leads to growth and that anyone can grow then in any way. You're not bad at math. You're not a dumb person, right? So we need people to embrace this no notion of failure, maybe not like complete and utter, um, you know, drop out of school right. failure, right? But, but making mistakes um, and taking risks. These kids are so afraid to take risks that we're not going to have you know, another Silicon Valley. I mean, we, we've got people who are CEOs in Silicon Valley where I live saying, where are the innovators? Mm. We've got little hoop jumpers, but where's the creativity? Where's that risk taking? They have crazy mottos in some of the companies here, like run fast or, and break things or fail forward. And, and you know, they're ha all in moderation, I would say, right? But you, you want to be thoughtful. But there's this real fear of making any kind of mistake, and, and that is how you learn. So we have to get over that. Yeah, and it seems like that you mentioned earlier when asking students whether they're flourishing versus how much money they make, which to me seems like a better indicator of if they're living a good life. Uh, and then also in the On Being interview, you said that passion, which I would imagine plays into flourishing a little bit. Passion comes from being open and being curious and taking risks. Uh, and um, so all of that, I think, plays into that sense of flourishing, what flourishing is for, for young people. Absolutely. And we can see that in K-12 schools. In, in other words, it's on us as educators and parents to really try to make that happen. I mean, one of the things that we know is, is, is a huge way to spark creativity and passion is to encourage reading for pleasure. How simple is that, right? But you see other worlds. You get out of your bubble. You, you're, you're, as you're reading, your brain is making pictures in your mind about what, what this looks like, what world this is. Um, 
asking a kid who asks you a question, instead of telling them the answer, pose that question right back to them and say, I don't know, but let's find out, right? Encouraging when you can any kind of safe, what we call safe risk-taking behavior. A kid says, I, I don't think I'm gonna try out for the play. I'm, you know, I, I don't think I can do it. Encourage that, right? Um, your daughter talking to the senator, that's taking a huge risk. And the hemming and the hawing, and maybe she didn't do it perfectly uh, this time, but she's gonna be prepared next time for a live person to answer. And hopefully that experience brought some joy and sparked in her the desire to keep going. I mean, that's that's John Dewey in a nutshell, right? Disequilibrium is is that feeling of ah, but then you do it and a little bit resonates and you want to do it again and continue to take that 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 safe risk. And that that's helpful too, because I think for parents who might feel paralyzed, if they I don't want to be the lawnmower or helicopter parent, but I also don't want to then go totally the other way and just be totally hands off. But it seems like we can be creative. Parents can be creative in the ways that they challenge their children on how they, and how they can be resilient and how they can flourish rather than only focusing on grades in, in college and only like, all right, I'm not going to do anything, but just to find creative ways that they can challenge and, and help raise their child in that way. Right. And I think, I mean, this happens all the time as a parent, you know, oh, I want to take that class, but it seems like it's too hard. I don't know if I should. And a parent might say, ugh you might get a bad grade in that class and that will that will ruin your, your college career. No, you as a parent have to say, you know what? If you're interested in that, take that risk. We support you, right? And you don't have to get straight A's and you don't have to be perfect. And and I think there is this sort of worry of you're going to be a total, you're going to raise a total slacker, right. right? If you're not on them, on them, on them. But, um, but as we were growing up, I mean, I think parents need to think back to how they were raised. And now, actually, a lot of parents were raised helicoptered. So, so they have to think back to maybe how their grandparents were raised. But kids need freedom to explore. They need freedom to be independent. They, they, there's a reason why adolescents push the boundaries. They need to see um, and learn from that and try things on their own and stumble. And you don't want major stumbles. You don't want them to, you know drive drunk, right? That's, that's too major of a stumble. Uh, that's not, that's not a place to push back, but in a safe place where you could push back by trying out for the play or taking a risk with a class or turning in homework that isn't perfect, right? As a parent, you have to let that go. Let the kid experience that mistake and let the teacher handle it and let them learn from it. That's hard. Yeah, it is. Like if we're, if you're my, my son, he's a, just finished up his freshman in high school. He loves drama. And there were a couple of plays he auditioned for this last year. He didn't get cast, which was a totally new experience for him going from middle school, always being star of the play to now much bigger pond. And he's not getting these things. Uh, or my daughter who, you know, didn't always get to play as much on the volleyball team. And so as a parent, of course, your gut instinct is like, I need to fix this versus like, well, this is a disappointment. And so, and this is going to happen. And so how do we sit with this and, and respond to it? It's really hard. And I, what I say to my kids, because obviously it happens all the time, is you're going to be the most resilient person on the planet. These <laughs> 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 things keep happening. <laughs> you keep getting through them. And it's so inspiring to me to see how resilient you're being, right? So you're right there supporting them. You're their cheerleader. You're their coach. But you're not fixing the problem. You're not mm-hmm. marching in and demanding a great right. change or they must have this part or yelling from the sidelines, put them in coach. You are helping them and modeling 
you know, parents are disappointed too. I'm disappointed when my kid didn't get that part, right? I have, mm-hmm. I have uh, actors in my family too. Uh, but you're modeling how you deal with disappointment. Just like right now, we're modeling how you get through tough times. Kids are learning really important things that have nothing to do with academics that we need them to learn in order to thrive and be really active citizens. Yeah, thank you for that. That's helpful. Well, I end these conversations by asking my guests to share, uh, speaking of failure, share a failure story. And so I was wondering if you wouldn't mind doing that. It can be professional, personal. It could have happened yesterday. 20 years ago, anything you want. I have so many. I'm actually on tape on the Resilience Project talking about a failure at Stanford, but I will tell you what just happened, which was just something that I we, that won't happen again because we definitely learned from it. I um, submitted an article. We, we, we decided to write an article about what we were learning from kids um, as they were in school remotely. What were some of the things that were working? What were some of the things that weren't working? And we interviewed all these kids and we wrote this whole article. We were all excited about it, spent lots of hours on it, submitted it, and we were way over the word length. I mean, we had nobody checked the word length for the place where we were trying to submit it ahead of time. And they came back and they said, you have to basically cut it to a fourth of its size, you know, which was more and more hours and trying to figure that out. And I thought, all this could have been avoided if we had just done our homework, right? It's just a no-duh moment, but boy, that was a failure and cost us lots and lots of hours and won't happen again, right? We have definitely learned, um, but uh, uh, there you go, you know, failure, boom. It's like I forgot to take something out for dinner the other night and that was a failure, you know, like big failures <laughs> failures, exactly. we just uh, model all the time. Right, yeah. Well, um, again, I really recommend for folks um, to, to, especially our parents and people involved in education, I highly recommend doing a school. And I have not yet had a chance uh, to read your uh, second book, too, um, uh, Overloaded and Unprepared. Uh, but I would imagine that gives other people some tools to use uh, in, in, in these areas. So, uh, Denise, thank you so much for spending time with me today and sharing out of your own experiences. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. And that's this week's episode. Thanks again to Denise for giving her time for this conversation. To find out more about Denise and Challenge Success, you can go to challengesuccess.org. And they're also on Facebook and Instagram. Instagram is at Challenge Success and also Twitter at C-H-A-L Success. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast on Apple or Spotify. The next one will come out in two weeks. And to find out more about me and my ministry, you can go to my website, christiancoon.com. Thanks again for listening.